this giving season, I'm asking you to join us at Justice Revival and stand with America's women and girls. Can you believe we are still not equal citizens in the Constitution in 2022? Change is long overdue. The good news is you and I can make history by backing the Equal Rights Amendment. The ERA means women's rights are fully protected. It's that simple and we are so close. We need the ERA to end sexual and domestic violence, the gender pay gap, and so much more. That's why I'm asking you to give today to fuel our faith campaign for the ERA. Just go to justicerevival.org give before Human Rights Day, December 10th. Show that you support women's rights. Again, that's justicerevival.org give. It's in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. Only this time, we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we are joined by Michelle Warren, president and CEO of Virago Strategies, a consulting group that provides strategic direction and project management for civic engagement campaigns alongside communities affected by racial and economic injustice. Now, I invited Michelle to speak with us today because I know that a lot of you are trying to figure out how do I enter into this movement? How do I give my body and my mind and my resources to help make a difference? Because the world needs a difference today. Well, Michelle has a new book out and her book is called Join the Resistance. Step into the good work of kingdom justice. And it offers a roadmap into the movement for just people just like you. So that's why she's here. And I'm really looking forward to getting the practical advice that she has for us, but also hearing her story because Michelle has a really interesting story herself. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends because. Our audience is growing and we love to see that. We love to see the conversation going around the world. And it really is. It's kind of really exciting. So, Michelle, let's jump in. The first question that I have for you, it really has to do with, first of all, you're, you're a white lady and you're saying, join the resistance. So you had, a, you had a journey to get here. What was your journey to get to the place where you would write a book about joining the resistance? Well, Lisa, thank you so much for having me. It really is a privilege to share this space. You and I have been friends for a really long time doing the work. And so it's fun (laughs) to, to really reflect and even be able to share some stories. 
And yeah, you know, it's going to take a long time to share too much journey. I guess there's a good reason I've written a couple of books. But yeah, as far as me, I started my career, my adulthood as a teacher in Dallas Independent School District. My mm-hmm. husband and I, we met, we're college sweethearts. We married and, and moved into Dallas. And we happened to move into an apartment, all African-American, all Section 8 housing. And I taught in the local middle school. And really, that was about the best three formative years for me on how to be a neighbor. Oh, I have been received in such a beautiful way. You know, we're the only white couple, the only married couple. You know, I remember that very first day we moved in, a couple came from downstairs. It was their daughter's first birthday. And they knocked on the door and said, would you like to come? And that was just day one of us living in a community that was different culturally and racially than we had both ever grown up in. And and they really taught me how to be a neighbor and which is really important when you're a Christian because you're supposed to learn how to love your neighbor. But if you don't know how to be one, you're not really good at loving. Mm -hmm. And so that is my first steps in. And there's a really long, beautiful story to that. But I Mm -hmm. will say this. When you are in communities that are impacted by economic and racial injustice, which we were in Dallas, then moved to Denver, and I've been in Denver for 26 years, mm-hmm. you begin to see a lot of, so I'll say, social concerns, things mm. that you really just don't even know how to interact with. Beautiful mm. people working so hard, two, three jobs, you know, pulling, holding their families together, you know, thriving, but not, I mean, more surviving than thriving. Like, you know, that's sort of the context in this really beautiful community. And you realize that I can't fix problems I don't understand, but that doesn't mean I should be sitting on the sideline. And so really my journey of proximity alongside my neighbors and really stepping into the work of what I'm calling resistance, which, you know, is, is really faith-rooted activism was not mm-hmm. overnight. And it was this realization that, you know what, you don't fall into the work of repair. It's intentional stepping in. So whether personal journeys or professional journeys, I just keep taking the next step to try to love my neighbor as myself, alongside my neighbors. We're trying to love each other and make sure that it's holistic all the way to systemic restoration. So what did it feel like? What was the situation the first time that you shrank that proximity gap, not just with your actual neighbors, But with regard to like the movement, when you first Mm -hmm. showed up at your first meeting that you weren't running, but you were just there. Yeah. So I will just say, I I call myself a faith-rooted activist because activism is, you know, you you think and you know that things are wrong. You believe it in your heart, but until it's like moving through your body and you're putting your body in action, you know, it's it's not activism. So faith-rooted activism, you know, I'm a person of Christian faith. And so I'm rooted whether I'm joining work that's secular or sacred, it is sacred to me because we're joining Christ and his restorative work in the world. And I have a lot of stories. I, you know, I, I can't remember the exact, you know, like the first of everything, because when you're in community, Lisa, you're really just trying to build something bigger than individual people, right? So neighbors come together and communities mm-hmm. come together and you begin to try to make your community a better place. And often, you know, what we would run into in our community is almost this belief that, no, it can't possibly be better. So I'm going to share just a small story. It is, it's not huge, but you have to believe that change can come, right? Well, wait, so, real quick. I just want to yeah. say, first of all, there is no small story. That's <laughs> 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 straight. You know, there is no small story. And, and the reality is, is that 
I, I understand that you say I can't really place the first time, but I, I actually think the first time could be that small story. And, and that's mm-hmm. not small. It's not going to be small for somebody who hasn't even had that yet. Like okay. people need to know what to expect. What can they expect when they walk in the room and they're Just not leading uh-huh. and they're there to figure out, to help work with their community to figure out how to solve a problem? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah. So our school had been started by pretty much one of the Chicano movements in Denver. For those of you who might not know Chicanos, you've got Latinos, people who've been in the United States for many generations are really holding on to their um, Hispanic heritage. And yeah, there's just a lot of proud heritage and movement. And so the school that my kids were going to go to had been started by, I would like I said, the Chicano movement, a little bit broader than that, but really that was the heart and soul of it. And they really wanted their kids and their community to have opportunity around language, you know, Spanish language, not just immersion, immersion but, you know, this mm-hmm. dual language concept, which now has popped up all over the country. But let me tell you, 27 okay. years ago, 28 years ago, that was like the foreign concept. My kid actually ended up going to the first public school in the country like that. But anyway, all to say that there was this particular amendment. A woman out of California wanted to shut down English as a second language. She had been successful in some ways, but was moving to Colorado. And there was going to be this amendment to the Colorado Constitution that would say that all students were not allowed to receive any instruction in their first language, that it was only English. And it, Wow. The, okay, so real, real quick. What would be the implications of that right. for those for those people? So in our school, first of all, all kids who are anything but English language, if they're English language learners, there would be no programs for them. You would just have English language immersion for the program that we built. And this happened the very first year. So you had all this movement, the community had been building it for three years, this model that had never existed in the country. And then all of a sudden this amendment, what it would mean is that my daughter and my son who were born into English households where English was their dominant language, they could learn a second language. But for the other 50% of the students who were learning to read and write in their language, which was Spanish in this particular case, they could not have access to it. So the integrity Mm -hmm. of the school was half, you know, people were native English speakers, half native Spanish speakers. You were supposed to learn how to read and write in your own language the first couple of years and then at always merging, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of complicated stuff. But all to say, this was going to happen. And there was a huge outcry around the state, but specifically around our school. Now, let me just say, I understand that. When I was, I lived in LA for like 14 years and I worked in the education field. I was a, the mm-hmm. educational director, believe it or not, for a youth ministry. Okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, hey, and this was a youth ministry in the heart of the Rampart District, which is, you know, they also call Mid Wilshire which is, of course, incredibly diverse. And so English as a second language was critical. And I remember those years when that was first kind of developing as a concept. And it was new. It wasn't really like this thing that had, it, was, it wasn't normative the way that it is today. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, the idea of, the, it, it feels offensive sometimes, I think, for people who don't have a lot of exposure to people whose, whose first language is not English. It feels offensive that they would not immediately you know, be dropped into English. Like, you know what I mean? But yeah, what I yeah. learned, what I learned through my educational training is that if a student can be fluent in their first language first, then 
the work that you do to teach them English will be so much easier and they will be much more fluent. They will end up much more fluent in English. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just a, okay, we're just, you know, it's not just like a 50-50 thing. It's an actual like yeah. strategy. No, you're you're not going to hold them highly back. Highly competent be- students. Yeah. You are not going to hold them back because as soon as you introduce another language, then you go to that level of learning. It, it's, a, it's a lot like a musical instrument. You know, you learn multiple and, and the second one is not as hard, the third, et cetera, but we won't go into music. Anyway, so all of a sudden, you know, that was going to destroy the very integrity of our school. It would not have hurt the kids who are English language dominant, but it would hurt obviously all of our native Spanish speaking families. And just like I said, this idea that we would have this shared beautiful culture with so much yeah, vibrancy and integrity with one another. So anyway, mm-hmm. I was asked to, this is great. I was asked to put, give flyers, hand out flyers to my kid's class. I was like, sure, I, I can do that. And so this is funny because the first time I'd ever done anything like this, I'm throwing flyers in the boxes because I'm like, of course, that's what you can do. Those little cubbies that are, that are outside the classroom. Did that in the morning. And then within an mm-hmm. hour, I got a call from the principal. Now, this, I'm a like a first time mom with a kid in a kindergartner in a kindergarten classroom, too. So, you know, so I'm sort of new. I hadn't had the principal call me and she calls me and she's just like, you're not allowed to put political material in a box. I was like, oh, OK. And I thought, oh, OK, well, I'll do that next time. She's like, so you can come collect your flyers at the office. So I went to the office and I ended up just handing them out. But that's what I said. It was just really simple. That's what I was asked to do. But then I was invited. I don't. I think if that had not happened, I wouldn't have even registered. I was doing anything political, because huh. when you are in a community, you are fighting for the flourishing of your community. That's what I'm saying. There's so many things I had done even up until that moment that may have been construed as political to an outsider. But when you are trying to survive and you're trying to push things forward that make you your lives better and and more enriching. You don't mm-hmm. call them political. You're like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to fight for my family and my friends. Anyway, one thing led to another. And this is, I, I went to fame pretty quick, I guess. I'm just sort of winking as I say that. Because I, of course, handed it out to everybody. And then I noticed all the vans and the cars had like soap writing. And so for the very first time, I'm putting no on 31. I'm like, yeah, I'm like into this. I mean, I'm beginning to realize this is really going to hurt my community. And I'm driving all over the city and I'm driving into my parents' guarded neighborhood in like the third richest county in the country, you know, with these with these kind of political signs. And then I was asked, will you come march with us? Mm, of course, okay. you know, sort of no. How did you respond you know? to that? Oh, I that went. really is an upping of the ante. Yes, I did. I didn't even, I, Lisa, here's the thing. I didn't even think twice about it. Yeah. I had to do it. And my school was there. But, and so of mm-hmm. course I have three little babies. You and I have been in work a long time. Sometimes I forget I have children, you know, like, because you're just sort of in the zone, but I've got these three amazing adults. They're 26, 24, and 20. But mm-hmm. back then I had a kindergartner, I had a preschooler, and I had a new baby who hadn't even been one. I remember putting him in a stroller. I really just, I just showed up. Never had done a march before in my life. I picked up a sign and I start marching. Well, you know, most of the families didn't look like my family. Right. They were mostly brown families. And wouldn't you know, of course, this white woman with a big No One 31 sign and her white little babies walking. We landed on the front paper, front page paper of the Pueblo Chieftain. You're not of course the front you did. Of, their, <laughs> of course we did, because we were unusual to the story. Right. And and all of a sudden I was like, wow, I didn't think of it. I didn't think about it in any which way. 
I will say that all of my driving and around and all of this kind of created a lot of attention. And I remember a friend of mine asking, saying something like, you know, Michelle, I, I never realized you were so political. Mm. And I looked at her, I'm like, I'm not that political. You know, because she was another white woman who was sort of challenging me. And then I looked at my van that had all these, but I thought, well, maybe I am. Is that even that? And I think those are some of the questions that I began to, I mean, I was asking lots of questions, Lisa, up until that time, but that was really the detangling of like, I don't even care if this is political. This is really deep. I mean, it's like really deep. And I kind of want to sit on it for a minute because the reality is, is that what she's really saying is, I didn't know that you were for people who are not white. Mm. That's the bottom line. That's really Mm. what she was saying. Mm. Because you're only political in as much as you are disturbing the way things currently work. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. The way things, and you are disrupting that. So you're disrupting the current politics. Therefore, she's feeling it. She's feeling Mm. your politicalness. But for you, like you're really just talking about your kid's school, like how yep. your kid's school will work, the education your kid is going to get, the education your your kid's friends are going to get, that kind of thing. And so it doesn't feel political. It's just about the education they're going to get. But politics, you know, po- you know very well. I know politics. Pol- <laughs> right? Like politics, all it really is, is supposed to be a conversation and the decisions that we make about how we live together in the world. So, of course, you were being political because you were challenging the way we live together. Yeah, that's a very civil definition of politics. I've never thought of it that way. I have my own definitions. And usually the word blood sport is in there somewhere. But (laughs) (laughs) it has become. Well, I was going to say, I usually say politics is a game that Mm -hmm. humans play to get things done. And we begin to learn the game. When we're about three years old and we know who to ask, you know, sometimes it's which parent or grandparent or, you know, sibling to who to ask to get what we want get to get done. We play politics in our marriages and our families. I mean, they're getting ready for Thanksgiving and there's so much politics. And I'm not even talking about the politics at the table. I'm talking about who's bringing what and how you're going to go around, you know. We're, we're or really whose house at. are you going to go to? Whose That's house what is everybody going to go to? That's what there's I'm saying. politics over that, yes. Oh, there's, that's just what I'm saying. So yeah, so we're actually really good at politics in the public square has become this game of, you know, basically playing with people's lives. It's, it's sort of this game of winning or losing. And unfortunately, we all lose. Um, and see, but see, that's, that's yeah. what it, I'm sorry, it just wasn't supposed to be that way. It wasn't supposed to be that way. I mean, when, yeah, I mean, when, we're supposed to be when, better at the dialogue. When Washington, you know, stood up and told the, Cong- the, the Congress in 1787, if this ever becomes too partisan, you won't be able mm-hmm. to govern anymore. He really meant it. And I think because we only have these two parties, it really has become like a game. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. basically, it's a long game of chess. And when you look at things through the prism of power, then that's when you get to see it. It's almost like the red pill and the blue pill. Like all of a sudden you can see, you see what's oh. happening around you and you swallow the pill. And now you're real. Now you're living in a, in a, in a world where political decision, everything you do is actually a political decision. In other words, it's shaping the way we live together or not. So, you know, that, that kind of goes back to, you know, the conversation with my friend. I didn't have to swallow those pills. 
mean, that's what privilege is. It means I don't that's have right. to think about the politics. I don't have to think about anybody mm-hmm. else because the system works for me. You know, when mm-hmm. I wrote my very first book, you know, that was sort of the first sentence. If you wake up in the morning and the system works for you, you think it's a good system. And when she was challenging me, it was really challenging. You know, we'll have to, we may have some time to talk about this, but there's a culture within whiteness that acts as though getting political is a very negative and even more negative if you're a woman. So yeah. she was challenging my appropriate behavior as a woman, as a white woman, and even as a Christian woman. And we could get into being a good Christian wife because, you know, my husband and all of the dangers that I put him in because I am speaking up for justice. I say that tongue in cheek. No, I'm telling you, I mean, I have actually had this conversation many times in many forums, but I think this is a really appropriate one to resurface it. What you just said is powerful, profound, and actually rarely centered in the conversation. Because what you're really talking about, because look, we, we talked generally about power about five minutes ago. We talked about how politics is the conversations that we have and the decisions we make about how the world, how we will live together in the world. But what you just got at is the reality of white patriarchy mm-hmm. and the Absolutely. reality that our world was formed with the understanding. First, it was written and then became un, unwritten, but still understood that the way we would live together is in a way that entrenches, protects, and establishes a trend, trenches and protects yeah. the, the dominance of white men. That's right. That's so when right. white men, when white women, rather, who were supposed to protect their white men and their white men's power, begin to challenge that way of living together, yeah, y'all become like Audi evil. You become like, you know, a public enemy number one. Yeah. No, it's the isolation and, you know, the sort of the kicking you out of the club is real. There mm-hmm. is no doubt about that. So how do, and then we're going to go to a break, but I want to know, you know, how do you counsel just, just a brief word and then we'll get into the, all the how-tos because that's what your book well, is about. Yeah, right, right. But how do you counsel white women in particular who come to you and say, I want to get involved. Yeah. What do you say to them? Just, you know, off the top. Yeah, just real briefly, I say two things. One is you can't fix problems you don't understand. Do you know anybody who's directly impacted? Like we don't fight for issues. We fight alongside people. And part of it is, is that it's so incredible. Well, one, we need to center the voices of people who are closest to the pain, but it becomes as much, it becomes for me, like I would never have backed off And I have not backed off because this is not an issue I'm fighting for. These are people that I love. These are people that love me. You know, this is us seeking each other's welfare. You know, so that's that's one thing. And then the second thing is I really resist. And I don't, I've had this kind of conversation more with white women, but I'm not saying it's exclusive to white women because I've heard, I've had, had it with women of color as well, as well which is women, I've heard them say things like, well, I'm really good at advocating for somebody else, but not for myself. And I understand that because for me as a white woman, that's sort of that culturally, I can only speak about my own culture, but culturally, I, you know, I understand that it's like, well, you know, this sort of this noble idea that you'd be, you're fine. Everybody's fine. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's broken, but you can, you can help somebody else. You're not so, everything is, is not that bad. It's sort of that, it's a very, it's a strong undercurrent in white culture. 
Mm-hmm. All to say is actually you're only going to be as good as you are as an advocate for yourself. So that's something I've had to learn is if I can't advocate for somebody else and not advocate for myself. Now, I will be honest, it was advocating alongside my community that I found my own voice. Mm-hmm. But I am a much better and much more powerful advocate knowing that I deserve dignity. I deserve respect. And I have a voice and I need to use it for myself and for absolutely everybody else who does not have opportunity. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Okay, so I want to dive into your book. I think that your book, Join the Resistance, Step into the Good Work of the Kingdom of Kingdom Justice. First of all, that title alone tells me we are talking to an evangelical audience. Is that what you intend? Well, I would say, it, actually, it's really Christian ecumenical. There's a lot of Christian leaders and Protestants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, there is a reason I use the word kingdom justice, mm-hmm. and it is around the evangel. I mean, I have to do a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of hand-holding. <laughs> yeah. You know, the evangelical community. But I still think it's going to be a hard book for them. You know, I think that, yeah. that ecumen- it's ec- broadly ecumenical, and I think that mainline and even Catholic social teaching is so good, it'll be easier to read. When you say there's, it's going to be a hard read for them, what are you thinking? Why? Because of some of the things that we just talked about. You know, politics mm-hmm. is a big cultural no-no, especially for women. But I, I mean, I grew up in a Republican family and a really conservative Christian family I mean, an environment, I would say. My parents mm-hmm. came from Catholicism and they, you know, found a different expression of who Jesus was and where they ended up. But and so they were kind of really bad at being born again and bad at being fundamentalist, but they sent me to white Christian school, you know, and I'm such a good girl, oh. like such a strong Enneagram one. Like I would look mm-hmm. at my parents like, what is wrong with them? They're such bad <laughs> Christian. So that's part of the reason I had this freedom probably, you know, from them. But still this cultural no-no. And I just want to say, especially for women, like I was literally taught only to peace keep. That the status quo was good enough and and everything just needed to be quiet and still. And my whole life was supposed to be about keeping the peace and not rocking the boat. And literally, I was taught to be afraid and not rock the boat. And it wasn't until I moved into a community, you know, African-American women mentoring, walking alongside me. They're the ones who taught me to be honest with myself and speak the truth. And that's when I began to understand the disruption needed for peacemaking. But but just to kind of go back to that, you know, my book and and why it will be difficult for evangelicals is because I use theological arguments on why you should be using your, not just your mind and your heart, but your actual physical body mm-hmm. to demonstrate love in no longer word and speech, but in action and in truth. And the most honest action is what's done in the public square. I don't think Christians should. Wow, that's good. That's a good word. The most honest action is what is done in the public square. That is the exact opposite of what people tell you. Because they say, they say, oh, well, you know, they might be doing this right now, but that's not how they really think. They really think this back here because we had this one private conversation and they said, or I heard them say this, you know, when they were speaking from the pulpit at their church. But when they speak from the pulpit of their church or they, they lead that Bible study and then they go out in the public square on the, and they're on the side that is pushing back against justice, mm-hmm. 
what you're saying is that action in the public square, that's when they are showing you who they really are. 100% because it costs so very much. It's the most expensive action. Mm -hmm. It's done in public and it's beautiful also. So I, like I said, you can't fix a problem you don't understand. You're not going to understand it from a distance. You know, so how are you going to join in an action of solidarity with your body, you know, Mm -hmm. your mind, your heart and your body to walk alongside people who are impacted by injustice? So injustice does not just happen. It does not repair itself. We don't fall into the work of repair. This isn't something you like just fall into. Oh, guess what? I ended up, you know, being an immigration activist. Here I am mm-hmm. all these years, Lisa, and that's been the issue I've done. You know, I've worked in the most because in the last 25 years, over 80% of my zip code is Latino. Wow. If I love my neighbor as myself, if I care, of course, I didn't mean to become an immigration activist. I cared. I was doing, when I went to graduate school at night to get smarter, Around mm-hmm. public policy, I actually did it for homelessness. I did it for homelessness and affordable housing because I was I was in a city that was gentrifying so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the tsunami of gentrification is if you can see it, it's already too late. And oh so this God. was in the 90s. And you know, so I was kind of doing that. And then all of a sudden, you know, things were happening mm-hmm. and immigrants were being used as these political pawns. In a 2007 and 8, was at the end of the President Bush, the George Bush administration, when he tried to put this comprehensive immigration bill together. There's a lot of reasons why that needed to take place. And, you know, as a result of some of the Department of Homeland Security and creation, the creation of that. I mean, I can get into too much policy wonkishness, unfortunately. But anyway, just to say, all of a sudden, you know, this narrative was coming up anti-immigrant. And there was this representative in the U.S. House named Tom Tancredo, and he was an evangelical. He came from a church that supported the organization that my husband and I started. And he was saying the most vitriol, anti-immigrant narrative I had ever heard. Mm. And all of a sudden, I just sort of woke up to, oh my goodness. So you sort of fast forward, I'm paying attention. Now I'm, I'm doing these side hustles of trying to organize leaders. And the reason I was organizing evangelical leaders was because that guy was an evangelical. And because I had capital in that group. I mean, like, Right. Part of my book is, you know, let me just say, you talk about the three parts of the book are serve the movement, stay at the table and help your people. I was doing the third part. Like I have to help my people. I've got to help white right. evangelicals. They don't realize that these this, the stories that they're hearing around the news are incorrect from a policy side. This, the fear that they have about people, totally not good. And then the theology, y'all don't even know there's a theology. So we got to mm-hmm. do some work. So that was kind of the, the beginning of that piece and highly political, highly controversial, but, but all to say that after all of these years, but even during that time, nobody in the immigrant community would wonder, huh? You know, and Michelle says she loves us and she loves her community. Yeah, she's been arrested. She's out in the marches. She's working as a chief of staff in a state senator's office who's running the DREAM Act bill, you know, the DREAM Act bill, but the that asset bill, it was for in-state tuition for mm-hmm. kids who would be dreamers. You know, all of the different things that I were doing, it was matching up. So I was this Christian who went to church on Sunday, who was working during the week on systemic justice issues. I was also like a mom doing laundry and, you know, like doing sure, normal yeah, stuff too. Yeah. But I guess the action and truth, it was like, there was no question. I mean, my mm-hmm. actions were so public and it wasn't for the sake of just, you know, throwing fire. Or, I, I shouldn't say fire. It was to throw fire. But it wasn't to sort of throw the middle finger up at. That was not the purpose. The purpose was, is we need justice. And it cries from the street. 
Right. So you have these three parts to your book. And the first part is serve the movement. Mm-hmm. You said stay at the table is the second part and then help your people. Let's talk about serving the movement. So you talked yeah. about walking in. We talked about that earlier. Brave okay. steps. You just talked, you just shared how Black women are the ones who kind of taught you to be brave. Mm-hmm. And the last, the next part is falling forward. Talk to us about falling forward. Yeah, well, falling forward is the chapter. Yeah, it's it's actually taken from, and I'm, I'm not going to get, I'm going to botch the quote and I hate that about myself. I'm going to have to memorize it. But Fannie Lou Hamer, all right, mm. she was the woman who inspired me from afar. I remember reading Charles Marsh's book, God's Long Summer, and it was a whole new eye-opening of how religion is used racially and in unjust ways. And so Fannie Lou Hamer, was one of the women in her faith was highlighted in the book about the work that she had been doing with voter trying to get people to register to vote in Mississippi in 1964. So she had had this kind of famous quote that it seems like no matter what I do, you know, I'm going to get killed. But if, right. if they, if, but they, if they kill me, I'm going to fall. I'm going to, I'm five foot four inches falling forward into the work. I'm not backing down. And so, wow. yeah, so that was bad. Yeah, I love it too. It's just so fierce. It's like, I'm moving forward. Even in death, I'm falling forward. And the serving the movement piece is, you know, those are the steps that you do what you're asked to do. This isn't about you. And and I will say, I have you and I have worked together for a long time and I have led national advocacy campaigns for many, many years that have, that have some white people in it, but it is not a white-led thing. You know, it's often I'm, you know, serving the movement alongside, but as a person who does this work, serving the movement, staying at the table and helping your people is the three principles of any type of work in this area. Mm-hmm. But my book, I specifically tried to include a white audience so that mm-hmm. they would know as a result of what I saw in George Floyd. I, I, I basically went to some of the marches. I saw more white people than I'd ever seen. I was kind of glad, but I was also skeptical. I was worried, you know, and they're wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts. Sounds like, okay, it's pretty good. And it didn't take long for me to start to see people push Black women out of the way to get a better view. Ooh. Oh, yeah. That's why I wrote okay, the book. Okay, talk to me about that because I was going to add my next question was, why were you worried? So were you worried was, about that? Yes. Well, I wasn't. I mean, I was worried because I had seen so many bad practices in all of my years. But George Floyd was an intersectionality of global proportions. Yeah. And so it was going to bring more people together on every yeah. side. And well-intentioned white people need to know how to move so that their, their actions don't complicate things further. And I so, saw bad practices. So you saw the bad practices. And, and the number one thing that you just named right there, which I just like literally just stopped me in my tracks, was the bad practice of centering yourself. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. centering mm-hmm. your sensibilities, centering what you know, centering how you see the world, centering your needs, centering your safety, centering mm-hmm. all of, centering yourself in the midst of the fight for equity, ironically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, between all of the images of God. And so, mm-hmm. so that's a really, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a, let's put it this way. It's not a helpful practice. <laughs> no, it's not a helpful no. practice. I no. thought you were going somewhere else. I thought you were about to talk about how you were afraid that give it a year or two, like boom, flash forward to right now. And about a quarter of those people, maybe even just an eighth of those people will still be in the movement, like still okay, be marching. Okay, so that happens every single time, which is why the second is stay at the table. But uh-huh. let me let me just go back to that serving the movement is 
you need to become a student of the movement. You need to become a student of the resistance, which is why I highlight activists all throughout the book. Very obscure, often very obscure people. People Mm -hmm. that we aren't reading about, don't always know because it it really changed in our society in our last, you know, 100 plus year history. This was not in the steps of people like, oh, I knew I was famous and I was going to, this is risks that every day people made from all different gamuts, from all different racial and socioeconomic and religious places stepped in to work together so that they could get change. I will just end this with the bad practices. I kept thinking this through George Floyd over and over again when I would see posts on social media, when I would listen to people and all I kept wanting to like was write a bumper sticker or scream from the mountains, your wokeness is not an opportunity to perform. Nobody's given out Emmys today, bro. It's you, like, don't get please, a, you don't get an award for... You serve, you serve, you serve. Oh. Here's another thing, Lisa. Rosa Parks and my grandmother. She isn't anybody... Wait. I mean, we don't even... I mean, like, that's kind of the side of Like, this is my Rosa Parks moment. No, she's not even your mom. She's not your grandma. Like, you don't even belong in the butt. Like, this is not your story. <laughs> if you are allowed in the butt... Go to the very back and sit in the tiny corner where no one can see you and just feel the honor of being in the presence of people who are risking their entire lives and their well-being in the fight for justice. Yeah. Yes. I will say this. I will say this because I think it's important, especially for those who are students of the movement, that it was important to have white accomplices. Of course. In the Southern Freedom Movement, it was an important part of the movement, and it was a rare part of the movement. But it was important, and it, so people like Viola Luiso, who <laughs> was one of the people who helped serve the <laughs> marchers from Montgomery to from Selma to Montgomery, and was assassinated on the way back. <laughs> um, people like the women, mostly white women, <laughs> who would drive their housekeepers to their work when they were marching or not marching, but just walking, like protesting the back of the bus thing during the Montgomery bus boycott. I'm thinking especially of of the women who were highlighted, um, both the black women and the white women who were highlighted in the long walk home. I believe it's called the long walk home with, and it was back in the eighties with. um, It's been a long time since I've heard that reference. Yeah, right? With <laughs> Sissy, Sissy Spacek yeah, yeah, and Whoopi yeah. Goldberg. And how amazing yeah. was that movie? That's a great, it's yeah. a great example of how ordinary women, white women, became accomplices with changing the world. They be, they, but they did it in a way that didn't grab attention. Okay. So I love, I just really love that. So Stay at the Table is your mm. next part. And the, you, ha, you talk about the long arc, the res, resilience, and leverage what you have. So I wanna, the long arc, we get that. Mm-hmm. I want to just talk about the resilience piece because the resilience piece does seem to me to be weak right now. Mm-hmm. Um, or I think, that, I think that the last two years has revealed that resilience among people of European descent in this area is weak. Yeah. yeah. And I think we can, we can see that because there were hundreds of thousands who were marching in the streets two years ago, two and a third years ago, 
And they started all these DEI programs and all the rest, right? Like just, but the question I have now is if that is the case, then why are we so worried right now about whether or not an actual, a, a political party that is promising to dismantle democracy in order to establish a white nation? Why? Why are we having this conversation if those thousands of people marched, 20, hundreds of thousands, yeah. billions marched two years ago? So resilience is a real question here. So what, what, what is your, what do you got? What do you got for yeah, white people? Well, yeah, your resilience is got to be connected to your rootedness. Mm. Okay, so talk I more mean, about that. I mean, let's think about that. Better. Okay, so what are you being... Rootedness you know, in what? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I think we need to sort of talk a little bit about resilience and in the general sense that resilience is not, everybody knows they have resilience. Okay. Mm -hmm. Resilience, you're not born with resilience. Mm -hmm. Resilience is something you earn after you have been knocked down and you keep getting up. Uh, And that's that's important. That's That's important. Wait, wait, wait. Let me just say real quick, because it's actually really good. Wait, real quick. So what you're really saying, not what you're really saying, what you just said is that Folks got knocked down in the last two years after marching, you know, against against racism and for George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, putting the yard signs up. They were all for it, but they got down. They got fat. Resilience is what you do with that now. It is not too late. That's right. I just heard you say. So that's exactly right. But let's think about communities that are directly impacted. The people that we're supposed to be centering. The people that we are learning from, guess who teaches us resilience? All they are is knocked down. When you are constantly and chronically oppressed and impacted by racial and economic injustice, you have resilience. Yes. And you have to. You have to. You have to. And so we still- I'm sorry, very, 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 very quickly. One of the things that gives that resilience that I found when I was doing the research for my book, Low Fortune, right? Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Is the spirituality, the deep connectedness yep. to God, yep. to the ancestors, to the call of the universe to move forward, to move forward and to and to have more and more agency on earth. That that belief that God is for our flourishing and that connection to God is what gives us really primarily the resilience that we have. And it strikes me that. A lot of folk of European descent right now have walked away or are walking away from God because they're disillusioned uh-huh. with white Jesus, the white Jesus they learned, uh-huh. they, uh-huh. they met in, in Sunday school. They're realizing that white Jesus leads to January 6th. Uh-huh. Um, so now they're walking away from the faith altogether. Um, yeah. Well, and that ties to the rootedness. You're talking just about the deep spirituality and you can only be as resilient as you are rooted. And so as you're looking at the injustices of the world, you know, from a white perspective that you're not directly impacted, but you have a heart of grief for them. And it's very genuine. Your Mm -hmm. awareness is real and you want to move towards some type of action. It's a long work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can say, oh, we get the long arc. Well, let me just tell you, Lisa, actually white people don't get the long arc. They don't get it because we're used to getting what we hope for. Mm. And quick. And quick. And quick, maybe not as much as we want or as much Mm -hmm. as the other person, but the system has been created to work 
for us. I do think there's a reason, there's a lot of reasons I believe that women historically step in to those kinds of works. And I know that I have been frustrated with women. I've been frustrated with white women. I mean, I am a white woman. I, I am a woman. I ran for U.S. Senate in the in the 2020 election because after Me Too, I was so upset that the numbers, you know, here we're going to have this great wave of women in the U.S. Congress and we just didn't see it. And I was mm-hmm. like, why aren't women running? And after just realizing a lot of internal stuff, I was like, Sharp, you're not running. Like, who are you kind of waiting for? I, you know, you know, mm-hmm. I want women to, you know, sort of step into that brave space. But I share that because of all of these intentional brave steps. And I, I would say, I don't understand why women continue to vote against their own self-interests. Yeah. So I would say that. I would say, yes. But then I realized it was this last year that I realized with white men, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. It is in our self-interest to actually vote with our husbands because things don't go well if you don't. What do you mean things don't go well? Well, I'm not talking about my particular marriage. All right. But what do you I, mean? I just what do you mean? But, but what you I'm mean saying, it don't go well in your marriage? That's exactly right. I have had women say my marriage is too fragile to be able to take a stand on something. Damn. This is a, this is a very common thing. Remember, I told you I was trained for the whole peacekeeping thing. I'm not that unique. I am really going to be shocked if there were white women who say, I have no clue what she's talking about. I have a feeling they're going to say, oh, yes, of course. You know, peacekeeping is is sort of the rule. And you don't talk about politics and you don't part with your husband because it's just going to create a disruption. And, and we're talking about white patriarchy. It, it, it's so just like there's just... I have heard this before. This is not the first time I'm hearing this, but I'm. I'm but it I think I've told you this before. Me every time I hear it, <laughs> and, and the reason why it surprises me every time I hear it is because voting is private. Nobody I know. can know. I, I realize how somebody that. voted, but it's but so complicated. But I don't think it. But here's the thing: I wonder if it's really not that. Here's the thing: I'm wondering if it's not that complicated. If it's actually rooted in the history, the same history that blocked black people from voting through Jim Crow practices that would, would intimidate Black people who were showing up at the polls to vote and saying, I'm going to tell your boss that you voted. If those same people, if that same history also had a history of intimidation of white women's votes, which I'm sure it did, which is the reason. Who knows? Blocked from voting until 19. 19- well, I would say we were blocked. But then another thing is, is that they realized that the elections were not really impacted by women's votes. Like women were voting alongside their husbands, even if it's private. That some I, when you saw wait wait, when you wait, saw, wait real quick is that true or did that happen? Like was that the case in 1920 or was that something? In other words, was there a white male intervention in women's voting at some point? Do we know that? Well, we'll have to go find that out, Lisa. If Let's there are two people to figure it out, it'd be you and me. Okay. You know, I'm going to say. I, I mean, I've I've seen it like cited in in you know re, not reports, but like in articles about right. how, you know, once women had the right to vote, that they didn't see big skews or changes that they thought that they would see. I, I mean, there's so much to speak about this. I do know that 2016's election changed a lot. And it, it started to some cracks of light. But oh, let's yeah. kind of go back to George Floyd. So we've had 2016. We've had 2020 election. Before that was George Floyd. But then right after that, we got CRT. And the Ugh. fight at state level. So I, I, I see pendulums. Yeah. We have an African-American president. And of course, we're going to see just the absolute opposite the next time with Donald Trump. You know, we've wow. got so many people marching and understanding and waking up to racial injustice and all. And maybe we're going to get those no chokehold. I mean, like police reforms, we need so much. But we are having some small little wins. 
people who have been at the table for years because of the marching were now being heard. I mean, that's what happens is this book that I wrote is actually the work be- between the marching. Yeah. There is work yeah. that is always ongoing. And sometimes it makes national yeah. news. And, you know, whether you're there doing the work, whether it gets attention or not. But but we see this pendulum of now, you know, the biggest enemy is, you know, our children hearing about, you know, feeling guilty, et cetera. I mean, you see those pendulum swings. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So we see pendulum swings and we have seen the pendulum swings. Yeah. yeah. And, and I want you to finish your point there and then I want to move forward and to help your people because I think honestly, that's what you're doing. That's what you started doing and that's what this book is doing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there is much more to say except that, you know, you, you asked, I mean, in the beginning of the, the podcast, we were talking about how people who had been marching probably wouldn't show up again. You know, they've, but they have been knocked yeah. down. Or here's another thing. It didn't happen fast. And that's why it was so important for me to put in, you know, stay at the table. This yeah. is not a work that is done on a task list. I mean, there's tasks yeah. to do, but you don't do justice on a timeline. You, yeah. you, you stay there for a long time. I used to teach a political advocacy class at Denver Seminary. And I would ask the students, why did you take this class? A bunch of pastors. Why did you take this class? What issues do you care about? And they'd scribble down with such energy. Oh, I, I'm just so excited to do political advocacy on these issues. And then I would say, well, how many years do you plan on working on it? And I didn't want them to tell me out loud, mm-hmm. you know, but I know they were saying like three to five years and they already said, already mm-hmm. were being called out on how ridiculous it is that you're going to knock out this injustice thing mm-hmm. in a few years. And that is hard to understand when you have access to power and things work for you if you're, if it seems obvious it doesn't work for somebody, you think it's going to change hmm. because it, it should change and it absolutely should change. But there are very strong forces of evil that perpetuate racism, that perpetuate oppression, that don't change easily. And so you're kind of leaving the, you're leaving the status quo. If you, you want to talk about Amos kind of going down, you know, the river going down, like justice or righteousness, really injustice, oppression, complacency, that's the status quo. But when you leave the ease of that river to traverse the resistance against it, you only do that work a long time, pretty much till you're dead. I mean, take some vacations, mm-hmm. take a little break, but this is a long work and we pick up the mantles that were left for us and we get our shoulders ready to help the people behind us. I mean, that's just the work. Michelle, Listening to you, you know, and it's funny because, you know, you just, you really just flipped that, that Amos passage because <laughs> it's like, let justice roll down like a mighty river. Oh, maybe. But you just talked about evil really rolling down like oh, a mighty that's river. that's what I was, absolutely. And we, and white people surf that river. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's actually maybe, maybe another way to think of it is that they're going to have to, you know, get their canoe or whatever it is, their little paddle Or boat. yachts. I mean, come on, we're white people. Paddle we boat. have more than a canoe. And Get into another river. Go go yeah. into another river, yeah. basically. I just, the thing that, uh, that... I would say this. Let me just say this. I don't think okay. we get in another river. I think we walk against the current mm. of the status quo of evil. So can I ask you this? What, what do white people have to gain? Uh, why, where does this come from? I mean, why? Why? Like, have you thought about that? Like, of course. Why? Why do we have to have a civil rights movement where people die? Why? Mm-hmm. Like, why does George Floyd and Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and Jonathan Crawford and 
you know, Sandra Bland and all the people, Brianna Taylor, why do they all have to die for us to do anything? And, and why is there resistance to good? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, because I think that if you, if you're going to join the resistance, you have to understand what it is that you're fighting. Like, what is this raging river of evil? That we're resisting. Where the fuck does it come from? You no know, kidding. No kidding. Friend. No kidding. No, no. But it, it's strong language for, for really deeply grievous yeah. realities. You know, I you're going to bleep that out, by the way. Here's the thing is, well, I was going to say, I hope you don't. You know, so all to say that it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to, especially those of us who are believe in the reconciling work of Christ, who is our peace. I mean, we're not supposed to live in a post-fall, pre-Pentecost narrative anymore. We're not supposed to allow injustice to rule the day. We're supposed to be thinking of ourselves with regard to a whole body where one hurts, we all hurt, that we are supposed to be communal and not individualistic. So yeah, my heart breaks because I, I can understand why humanity wants to preserve itself. I do. I mean, I can see that how Christians can read the Bible and say they profess a faith that allows the subjugation and oppression of other people. No, I don't understand. But I will say that I don't say that with a snark. I say that as somebody who is in the work and is desperately working to, you know, obviously remain engaged because I still choose to do this, Lisa. And we all do to a degree, but I want to help my people. I mean, I don't really want to help my people, but I need to love my people. You know, I need to help them. And I do know that this work, that, the, that people shouldn't have to die and the work is done with a lot of people. And so the, you know, sort of the bus, that so sort of prover- proverbial butt isn't full enough until white people are there too. I mean, we got to figure out where their place is. They need to figure out where their place is, you know, but we That's need true. everybody working to go upstream so that we can change. You know, you said, I don't know where it's coming from. Neither do I. I don't think anybody really does. We got to keep going upstream together so that we can reverse that. Well, I think it's really interesting that, you know, in this book that's about joining the resistance, that you you close the book in, in part three, you know, when you say help your people, you're actually talking about rootedness. You're talking about get rooted, get rooted in love, get rooted in peace. Get rooted in joy as we are. And this is just, it's a profound image, right? To have, can you imagine standing at a raging river of evil that is coming against you? And you are saying, get into that thing and smile. I think you just said Psalms 1. Get into that thing and have, like, like find your own. (laughs) Yes. Find your, and I'm saying that, you know, through tongue in cheek, but, but find your peace. Here's the, the thing, Lisa. Exactly. So think of Psalms 1. And love. Think of Psalms 1. Psalms wow. 1 talks about the tree being rooted, that they're not going to sit and stand in the place of sinners and scoffers and evil, but we're going to be like trees planted by the rivers of life so that no matter what comes, we will not be unrooted. Mm. And that is exactly the imagery I actually go for in the last three chapters. You know, one of the things you and I have in common is we're both worship leaders and music, musical artists. Mm-hmm. And I brought that to this too, because this is, this is a soulful work. And it, it, you sing songs of lament and grief. You sing songs of hope. You sing songs of joy. And I don't know if, you, I don't know if you've met Reverend James Forbes. You probably have. I, oh, I had yeah. met 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I had a newer introduction. Oh, yeah. That's what I said. I'm pretty sure you had. Well, I had the opportunity to be with him and he was talking about the power of song during the civil mm-hmm. rights movement. Mm-hmm. I should talk about it in my book a little bit. And he was just saying that when, because he was a young man, you know, growing up and sort of coming to age in the civil rights movement. And he said, you know, when we, when mm-hmm. we were holding on to each other, singing, we shall overcome. And, you know, there were water hoses and dogs. He's like, if you looked around, it was a picture of anything but overcoming. He said, but we sang it so boldly that we, it was like depositing a vitamin Mm -hmm. into our souls for Mm -hmm. the nourishment for the movement. And so so I just, I just think the power of song, I I just didn't want to miss that because this is a hard work and it is a long work, but it is a beautiful shared and sacred work and we Mm -hmm. can do it in song. And I think that one of the things that actually convinced me that this movement that we are talking about, this resistance we're talking about, is not actually a political movement. It's Mm-mm. not. It has political implications for sure. Mm-hmm. It will change the way we live together. But it's actually a spiritual movement. Yeah. I mean, at its heart, it is actually, it's really actually a, a faith movement. And And the reason why I say that is because you're talking about coming against a way of seeing ourselves. The only way for people of European descent or those, anyone who has lived for 400 years, 500 years on the top of a human hierarchy to allow others to rise to, so that there's equity is for them to grab hold of their inner core <laughs> and the understanding that at their core, they are beloved. Yeah. Period. And that has nothing to do with hierarchy. So you can lose the hierarchy and it doesn't mean that you've been demoted. It means others have been promoted to full humanity in the same way that you have enjoyed for 500 years. Mm -hmm. And it's not, but that, that takes a spiritual rootedness that is, it, that just can't happen without that spiritual rootedness. Likewise, when we, when we talk about shifting the way things work in society, what we're really talking about is we're we're talking about bringing about the flourishing of the image of God in every corner of the world. And that is a fundamentally faith-rooted vision. A hundred percent. You would think Christians would be running to get on the train for that one, right? Running. You know, as you're speaking, I mean, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about in his beloved community. Exactly. You know, I was thinking about even how you phrase it in your book, The Very Good Gospel, when you talk about Shoreham, and I quote you in my book, actually, in this particular oh, piece. Girl, now I'm blushing. Yeah, well, no, it's true. I mean, I think I, probably, I wish everybody would read that book. You know, I think that you have a good imagery to really understand kind of what happens and mm-hmm. the implications. But, but just to say that, you know, the kingdom of God in context is Shalom. You know, yeah. and, and that's really what you're, you're talking around. You know, that's, I, that's what I believe Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about in his beloved community. Yes. And this isn't an American thing. I mean, we have some deep problems in America, but the whole world and, and our humanity literally is, I believe our humanity is crying out for, I just don't think we have, I think we have the tools. I don't think we go in search of the tools. I think that we allow a lot of fear. I think there's also a lot of blindness to really what's going on. And you and I have talked a lot about just the work of truth-telling and repair. I talk about mm-hmm. that quite a bit in our bu- in my book, you know, mm. especially in the section where we're on peace. You cannot have peace if you don't have honesty. 
and mm. of what really is broken. And, you know, your fortune, your book on fortune does a great job of talking about that with your family and how it broke. But, but there's even a bigger, you know, a bigger brokenness in humanity that, you know, we really need to be honest about what's going on. Growing up, it's in, in what I don't, like I said, I, I don't speak for all white people. Let me just tell you, I do not speak for all white people. I do know a few things about white culture. You know, I was brought up in it. And even though I've lived like 30 years in the communities of color, when I was running for U.S. Senate in a state that like is 82% white, I'm driving all over the state of Colorado. I began to realize, oh, I never lost my my native tongue. You know, I'm good at whiteness. I got white. I got white. I know how to talk it. I, you know, I don't speak for all white people, but there's a phrase that I heard growing up and there's a lot of pictures, even to this day, and it's more of an older generation of people on Facebook where they'll cover up their eyes, cover up their ears, and cover up their mouth. And so seeing no evil hearing no evil and speaking no evil is actually cute. And that is, I mean, if you want to watch- You said cute. Yes. If you want to watch fire from heaven come down in my soul, oh my goodness, I'm having a hard time in this podcast not wanting to react to that in such a strong way because there is nothing cute about evil. And that for us to be honest about what's really going on, we need to open our eyes wide and be willing to see the evil. We need to open up our ears, no matter how much pain the cries and the reality and the truth bring us. We need to, and we need to open up our mouths and speak loudly what is really going on because you cannot have repair without honesty. I have made a personal commitment and I've said this over and over again. I want to keep, you know, saying this is I refuse to call evil good and I refuse to call good enough good. Mm -hmm. Because in white culture today, we look back at Jim Crow, okay, that was evil, but it's good enough now. Mm -hmm. No, I refuse to call it evil good. And I refuse to call good enough good because I want to be a peacemaker, which means I see that as much as God allows me to see the truth and the reality of the pain and the injustice, and I don't close anything up. I stay present in it. And together with those in it, we work towards its repair and restoration. And that's peacemaking. Amen. That's peacemaking. And that's peacemaking rooted in belovedness, in love. Yes. You, wow, I love that. I love that because that is what someone does when they actually love their neighbors. They don't settle for good enough. That's right. That's what someone does when they actually love God. They don't settle for a half-broken image of God. They want that Mm -hmm. image of God fully restored, fully flourishing. Wow. Oh, this has been so good. (laughs) I want to say thank you so much. uh, Oh, thank you. These are the conversations that leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media and produced by Corey Nathan. Freedom Road podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. And you can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. And we promise we will not flood your inbox. So we invite you to listen again next month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. And if you are in our Patreon community, 
you get an extra tidbit, an extra 15 minutes of conversation with Michelle Warren. 